We're going to talk to Steve Acethorpe primarily uh, about this book. If you haven't got it yet, why not? Um, that's my little marketing plug for you, Steve. Um, it's a great book. I was just saying before, uh, in order to uh, to read it for tonight, I've kind of rushed through it. And I feel actually there's so much in it that I need to go back and reread it again at a slower pace so I can actually take in some of the stuff that's in it. So it's um, I, I recommend it to you, uh, available through all good booksellers. I think that's what we say isn't it, at that point. So I'll ask Steve to just unmute himself and um, uh, we will begin. I was saying before I should do this in my best uh, Silla Black type accent. Number one, tell us what's your name and where you're from. Um, Steve, tell us a bit about your background, where you live, what you do at the moment, to keep yourself busy, kind of what your interests are, because uh, that will become apparent um, as we talk through this. But actually, that's really important, what, what interests you. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I live in a little village called King Craig in the Highlands of Scotland, just up near Aviemore. And I guess I've spent about half of my life up here now. I, I work for the Church of Scotland at the moment. I work as a mission development worker for the north of Scotland. And I've been doing that for yeah, a decade or so. Uh, I'm originally from Lincolnshire. That's where I was born and grew up. And uh, my interest, I think what you're referring to is, I guess I've always been interested in nature and the natural world. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was really a keen bird watcher and things, but I just always take a lot of interest in, in the outdoors, the great outdoors. And then at later teens and into my twenties, particularly, I really was into climbing, mountaineering. So I think there's a few stories in the book mm. that come from, from that part of my life. And, and I still love doing that. I mean, I, I would say I, I like to do adventurous things. I, it, it strikes me actually um, the climate itself is a good metaphor for tackling some of the issues of the church I mean it must feel like at times facing a, a cliff that almost feels unsurmountable and uh, finding a route a route through it perhaps yeah. um, rewilding that's at the heart of, uh, of the title of the book tell us a little bit about what rewilding is from a, from a point of view of nature it's a, I mean, rewilding is, is quite a new idea in a sense, in that, you know, the word rewilding is a recent word, um, but it's all about putting nature itself in the driving seat. So it's kind of a different view to what we've traditionally had about landscape in that, you know, we've often talked about conservation and we think conservation has been about kind of uh, keeping nature pristine, but actually what we've usually done in the name of conservation is preserve a man-made landscape. You know, there's not a lot of wilderness in the UK, to be honest. Um, you know, our national parks are, they've been shaped by, by human intervention over the years and we've grown to love them. And I mean, I, and I love them. I love the landscape of the Highlands of Scotland, but I know that actually it's, it's a sheep wrecked overgrazed landscape it's not what would be here if the landscape was left to be itself so that's the that's the kind of environmental idea of rewilding it was quite funny when i looked at my um diary entry for tonight i realized that um autocorrect had changed it to rewinding the church and not <laughs> not rewilding the church uh, uh, perhaps you could comment on that i don't know i don't know but uh 
so what made you decide to use that as a metaphor of a church and i guess i guess crucially the perhaps the most important question we start off is why why write the book yeah okay so for me it started four years ago and uh yeah almost exactly four years ago october 2016 i was trying to finish a, a previous book um this book called the invisible church which is a different kind of book it, it's book um, a book based on my research among people who are Christians, but not involved in a local church congregation. And in the last chapter of this book, uh, the chapter is called uh, Glimpses of the Future? And, and I was trying to ask the question, so if the trends we currently see in the church are the future trajectory, where is that taking us? What, what does the church of the future look like? And uh, at the same time I was struggling with that, I was also part of a book group here in the village where I live, and we happened to be reading a book on rewilding, uh, a book called Feral by George Monbiot. And so on the one hand I'm writing and on the other hand I'm reading, and I just found there were so many connections um, so in, in this book, The Invisible Church, it, in each chapter there's a, a um, cartoon at the start of it. And I don't know, can you see that well enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's a cartoon and there's a ship going down and the name of the ship is The Church Unchanging. And it's surrounded by all these little boats and life rafts and people clinging to bits of wreckage. and that for me is is a pretty good picture of the church the church with a big c so mm. the christian community the body of christ at the current time in the western so, world because it's fair to say that all the way through your book you you make that point don't you, that when you talk about the church you talk about the, the church universal not not yeah. the church in terms of specific denominations yeah I, I think we have to now because the church with a big c has become very different to the church, the institution. Um, so, so that, you know, I showed you that cartoon there and I suddenly realized as I was struggling with that last chapter of the invisible church, I thought, gosh, I think God is rewilding the church. Hmm. I think we've domesticated church. We've kind of tried to, to tame Jesus somehow and we've done to the church what we tend to do to landscape we've, we've kind of constrained it and, and locked it down but but god won't be doing with that you know <laughs> so he's kind of bursting out you know we can't box him in mm -hmm. um and so you know in what i discovered in my research with the invisible church is that you know, there's great amazing stuff going on amongst that wider christian community and that many people who've disengaged from institutional church are are very passionate about their faith uh, and they're getting on with it i mean several things came to mind then as you were talking one that clear distinction when he talked about kind of landscape being you know more an act of conservation these days and and, and that's very easy to to draw a parallel with the church as well to say that you know how much are we uh, the business of conservation and keeping what we're familiar with and not allowing uh, new things to develop from it but also thinking as well now, uh, when we spoke earlier, you said, I think it was February, you finished the book. And of course, 
February is a great marker in the world at the moment, particularly in, in our area of the United Kingdom, you know, where we think February life changed and, and things that have been previously going up had at full steam came to a grinding stop and and we're into this uh, you know what commentators have called the new normal or uh, unprecedented times you know you could do a COVID-19 bingo I think at one point couldn't you and tick off all the uh, all the sayings but actually thinking about the book you just talked about um, about the invisible church and you talk about these these churchless Christians these people that are passionate about the faith and they've left church and just touching on that for a moment, what effect do you think COVID-19 will have had on this, on this group? Okay, so I think it will go both ways, if you like, in that I know, because I mean, I'm, I'm still in touch with many of the people I interviewed and surveyed for that research. I, I know that there, there are some people who are probably going to re-engage with institutional church in some way when this is finished. Uh, but I also know that there will be many people who have been kind of hanging on by their fingernails in our church institutions and they will find in the current scenario a way of leaving church painlessly um, because that's often the story um, you know as I interview people I often found that people have been struggling in church for years but then somehow an opportunity presents itself to leave without a big fuss and, and often that's moving house, to be honest. But I think you know the current situation will provide that opportunity for, for some people. Um, I should have said earlier as well that if anybody's got any questions that they want to ask Steve at any point, then there's a little Q&A button down at the bottom. Um, just press that and I'll make sure that those questions are fed through to Steve. And, and, and really, it's great. The more questions we can get asked by you, then the, the more interesting it becomes. So, um, and the less talking I have to do. So that's also a real positive. Um, I, I found myself reading this book and I think recognising that as much as anything, I'm as much a part of the problem as anybody else's because you know i'm part of the institutionalized church uh, i've grown up in it there's bits i like there's bits i'm frustrated with there's bits i want to keep the same there's bits i want i want to change and see different and, and at first i kind of found myself almost thinking are you just suggesting that we need to rid ourselves of the institution as we know it um no i'm not i mean i would say that um you know particularly saying this to people who haven't read the book, I guess, you know, I hope that it is a really hopeful book because I think the, the, at the heart of it, I'm, the parallel I'm drawing is that, you know, at the heart of nature, there is this innate capacity for growth and regeneration and renewal. And at the heart of the church, there is what Paul calls, you know, in Ephesians 1, this immeasurable great power you know that the same power that brought jesus back from the dead you know resurrection power is at the heart of the church so um just as we see in nature when we kind of just take our hands off the steering wheel or you know to give a practical example lift a paving slab mm. or uh, just leave the corner of your garden for a few years and you will see you've, you've been to my house haven't you <laughs> <laughs> not yet uh, <laughs> I mean, there's one naturalist that I quote in the book who talks about the bounce back ability of nature. Yeah, I, I love that word. I mean, I've heard it related to sport before now, but not. Yeah, well, actually, he's a naturalist and and a sports um, journalist. Yeah, so yeah, that's where he gets it from. But um, if you look at the history of the church, 
the church has an incredible capacity for bounce back ability. I mean, there have been a number of occasions in the history of the church when it kind of looked, from any human point of view, it just looked incredibly unlikely the church would survive. It shouldn't have survived, but it, it bounced back. Um, now, I'm talking about you know, the church, the body of Christ, uh, God's people um, on earth, etc. Um, that is where the bounce back ability is. So, um, what was your question? <laughs> um, really was um, did you see was this the end of the institution as we know it really oh, okay so I, I mean I, I see the future as being much more diverse so you know I showed you that cartoon I mean the church is becoming has become much more diverse and that's what happens with rewilding you know the, the biodiversity is given a huge boost when we, when we allow that to happen and, and so I think there will, the, the future of the church, there will be institutional expressions of church for sure. You know, I think, there, I think there'll be cathedrals in the future. I think many of our denominations will, will survive. I think they'll be changed, but they'll, you know, they'll still exist, I think, in the, in the future. But as I, I say in the book, I think the, the trends that we see suggests that uh, the small will be a much bigger part of the church in the future and we see that already you know if you look where the church is is, is growing and particularly where there's kind of new expressions of church springing up that they're, they're invariably small and informal and you know one of the things i guess it surprised me in my original research that i did for the invisible church is the first thing that people typically do when they disengage from a church congregation is try and find fellowship you know, as Christians, we do want to be together, you know, the prayer, you know, we pray our father, our father, you know, and as soon as you say God is father, you've got all these, you know, millions of brothers and sisters and we're, we're a family. So, so, you know, it, it's not that people want to kind of do their own thing and, and just be isolated, but, but the small, the informal, whether that's as small as, you know, a few people getting together in a coffee shop when that's allowed <laughs> or on yeah, Zoom yeah. when it's not. But yeah, I think that, yeah, the small will be a, a bigger part of the picture, I think, but the institutional will still be there. I mean, I think that's really interesting. We were, we were touching on this before we started and before everybody else joined us about uh, at the moment, the highlights for fact that what we miss more than anything is our kind of interconnected nature, our, our desire to be with, with other people. I. I mean, I have to say, whilst I started off thinking about it, as I said, just get rid of the institution. Um, I, I, and it's interesting, and your final chapter is all about going from, from lament to trust, you know, and, and I found myself actually working through this uh, as I reflected on where the church was, is, and needs to go, perhaps doing that journey from, from some kind of idea of lament through to, I did leave feeling really hopeful, um, and particularly hopeful about what you were just talking about, this, this um, diverse nature that, that we see developing in the church that I find is encouraging as well. But but you said the word there um, as you taught that's probably key to everything at the moment and that's the word change. Um, and you write in the book and you say that change is perceived as a loss before it's experienced as a gain. And I, I kind of really highlighted that because I thought that is just about so, so key. How do we help people then to move from one to another do you think? from that sense of loss to gain 
Well, I think first the challenge is to get to that sense of loss, to be honest, because I, I what I see around in the church is that to a large degree we're we're in survival mode. We we want we want to fight for the church to survive. We're not in that place of lament in many cases. So I think you know that that's the first challenge to recognize that actually we do need to you know the the church as we've known it is passing. You know that that big ship you saw sinking in the cartoon mm. is is not the church it's the church unchanging mm. um so yeah we need to get to that place of lament and then we need to recognize that actually we i mean i know it sounds a bit corny but we need to be the change you know the church is us and as we are changed the church will be changed. And the story of writing this book for me was that I thought I was going to write it in the space of about a year, and it would have been out three years ago. And within a short space of time, I just hit a brick wall with it. I just really struggled, and I just had to leave it for quite a long time. And I came to realize that the reason I hit a brick wall was because I needed to actually live some of the stuff that I was writing about. I needed to be rewilded, if you like. Um, and I guess in the book, I'm saying God is rewilding the church. And therefore, if we're going to get on board with that, we need to be rewilded. Um, and I use the, the illustration of, of reintroducing species. So, you know, in often when rewilding makes the newspapers it's about something about uh, dramatic like introducing some big predator back to the UK you know bears or wolves or whatever um, and I'm saying okay yeah actually in rewilding reintroducing some of the key species that have been lost is a, is a really important step and I'm saying that we need to reintroduce Jesus and in saying that, I'm not suggesting that, that he's absent from the church or, or that we've kind of disowned him or something. But I think again and again, we need to reintroduce Jesus into our own lives and into our institutions and discern what he's got to say about what he finds. Um, I think that's really interesting and I'll come to that in a moment in in what you're saying just and I don't want to lose that reintroducing Jesus because I think that's key to what you talk about in the book it's, it's kind of like the it is like the central theme I think really of, of this book about the reintroduction of of picking up that um, crucial thing of follow me I, I want to ask you two questions one um, a question from Kate who's just uh, shared with us and um, and firstly, just picking up on this idea of change, do you think um, the, the time we find ourselves in now with COVID-19 and so much has changed, do you think this is the best chance we've had for ages to, to stop and just set off in a new direction? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the chapters in the book is about listening. And the first bit in that chapter, the sub subtitle is Stop look listen now you don't have to stop to re-emphasize listening listening to god listening to the context you're in but sometimes you do need to stop and one of the illustrations i draw there from the world of 
rewilding in nature is that in the south of England, there's a big estate called the Nepp Estate, which is, has become a, a very publicized example of rewilding. And they had been doing intensive agriculture for about 220 years, I think. Uh, same family, you know, grandfather, father, son, etc. But they came to the point where they realized that the soil just had no life left in it. Um, and the, the, the profit was shrinking until they were just making loss on loss on loss. And they came to the point where they thought, we've just got to stop. We can't do this anymore. And they stopped and as it turned out, it became a, a rewilding project and they've got a totally different way of, of using the land and, and making a livelihood from it and creating jobs from it, et cetera, et cetera. But, but they had to stop. Um, and I think I mentioned in the book too, the, the example of Nehemiah, you know, Nehemiah hears the bad news and Nehemiah is a man of action. You know, we, we come to learn that as we read on, but in, in the first chapter there, what we hear is he hears that bad news. And what does he do? It says he sat down mm. and then he wept mm. and then he prayed and then he moved into action. So I think for some of us, we do need to stop. And hey, we've got <laughs> we've got an opportunity here. Many of us have had to stop. And you know, I wish some in some cases that people would stop kind of fighting to get back to how things were and and to appreciate the opportunity we've been given to stop and to reimagine how things could be. So, so coming to Kate, Kate says, you know, this conversation is great. Um, how do we have it in our churches, especially when it could seem for ministers a bit like turkeys voting for Christmas? <laughs> uh, well, you could buy them a book for a start. So... <laughs> Never miss a sales opportunity. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing, you know, my work, I, I work with, with congregations, I, I work with, with ministers, with groups of ministers. And you know, one thing I've noticed over the years is if you're working with a congregation uh, where there isn't a minister involved, uh, often the barrier to change seems to be the minister. When you meet with groups of ministers, the barrier to change is the congregation. <laughs> and I, I think the key, uh, Kate, is, is to find that common ground. And surely the common ground is, hey, we, we want to follow Jesus. We want to be followers of Jesus. So how about we start having a conversation about what that looks like? in 2020 in the particular context where God has put us with the particular people that he's lumped us together with and 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 start from there you know right right back to to basics rather than starting from the point of view of this is how we do things this is where it's at what might we change you tell the story um which I'll ask you to share in a moment if you come into faith because it's quite although it's over a drawn out period of time it starts off in quite a dramatic way at least I, I it felt quite dramatic to me it must have felt even more dramatic to you at the time um so but then in a sense well tell the story first and then we'll we'll I'll, I'll go on after you've told the story and then everybody knows what we're talking about um okay so I think the 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 um 
kind of dramatic bit you talk about, you're mentioning probably is that I, in my early 20s, I would have said I was an atheist by that point. I, I'd kind of been searching as a teenager. I felt God hadn't turned up. Um, in my early 20s, yeah, I would have said I was an atheist. As I've mentioned, I was a very keen climber at the time. I was climbing a frozen waterfall in Norway. I got near the top. Um, it was getting dark. My arms were extremely tired. I really thought I was going to fall off. And if I was to fall off, it was likely I was going to die, just the way things were. Um, I wasn't very well protected. I would have probably taken my friend with me to the bottom. And I found myself praying. And, and I kind of realized, oh, goodness, I'm praying. You know, it's a strange thing to do. You know? and, and I had this sense. So, well, the choices are I can hang on for a bit longer and then I'll just drop off. Or I can kind of trust somehow. I can trust. And, and so I took one of my ice axes out and I swung it. And as I swung it, I prayed, oh, God, please let this be a good one. Uh, and it was. It was amazing because the ice had been really brittle to that point, but it went in first time. And I pulled the other one out. Oh, God, please let this be a good one. Uh, and it was. And, and over the next few minutes, I climbed seemingly effortlessly to the top of this, this frozen waterfall and kind of slumped over the top. And it was a very surreal experience, very strange experience, um, which did not lead me to become a Christian at that moment, but that started me on a search. I thought there's more to life. Than, than this. Um, and it was some months later, uh, a friend had pointed me towards reading the New Testament, which I'd, I read through um, Matthew's Gospel three or four times and was changed by that experience, really. And yeah, that's, that was the time when I went, away, went along and, uh, and prayed and decided to, to follow Jesus myself. I think um, that perhaps many of us could tell a sort of similar story of that kind of um, dramatic coming to faith. And yet somehow it feels like what starts off as a dangerous adventure um, kind of gets tamed somewhere along the line. And, and you talk, you refer to C.S. Lewis and the, the idea of a great interferer. Do you think that somehow the church rids people of his sense of adventure? Yeah, I, I do sometimes. Um, I don't want to generalise too much, but uh, and if I think back to my experience there, when I first came to faith, I lived a life at that time, which most people would say was very adventurous. You know, I was going to different parts of the world, climbing difficult, dangerous mountains. It was a life of adventure. And yet, through reading Matthew's Gospel, I realised that there was a much bigger adventure that I was not any part of at that time, and I wanted to be part of it. And so I had this real sense when I decided to follow Jesus, this is going to be the adventure. This is the adventure. And it is. And I still believe that. Um, now, since then, I've been part of different churches in different parts of the world. And to be honest, some of that, some of those experiences have felt like a huge adventure. Um, where week by week, there's a real sense of what God is doing and being part of that. Um, but I've been part of other churches where it just felt incredibly predictable. And, and I find myself thinking, how can this be? How, how can it be that following Jesus has become so tame and predictable and gentle, in a sense, um, and unchallenging? 
I guess we've been asked a question really that ties into that. How do you encourage congregations to engage and to look at church life, discipleship and worship differently when there is little interest in anything that's not normal or familiar? Where should the starting point be? So, so I disagree with the last bit you said where there's no interest in those things. So my experience is whenever I work with congregations, which you know, I do normally, you know, I do that week by week. I've been doing that for a lot of years. And I nearly always try to get people talking about their experience of, of faith, not just when they became a Christian, but, you know, experience of faith. And, and people often need a little bit of help with that. It seems to be not a normal part of congregational life. It's not what people talk about over coffee after the service. So, you know, one thing I do often is, is just put out lots of pictures around the room or on a table and say, is there a picture here that says something about your experience of faith? And invariably, I mean, it, always I would say, you know, people pick up a card you know, and say, oh, you know, what, whatever the picture is, it doesn't matter. That's just the, the kind of stepping stone in a sense. And they start to say what it has meant to them. And invariably, later people will say, gosh, we don't often have those kind of conversations. That was great. I didn't know that about this person and their journey with, with God, etc. So, so I think, you know, that's starting to get back to the core of it, if you, send, if you like, um, and, and talk about that is a good starting point. So, I mean, particularly the United Reformed Church at the moment, we're encouraging its members to, to engage and walk in the way. You know, that kind of a refocus of what we said about on, on Jesus. Um, you've touched on it, but how do you think that changes us and how do you think that changes the church? Well, I think it changes us because we rediscover our passion. Mm. We rediscover what it was that excited us about this at some point in the past. And that helps us, do you think, to re-engage with the world and the communities that we live in? And... I, I think it reignites a spark within us and that encourages us to, to reimagine um, what we might be together. Um, I'm also conscious as well that when the church does things like that what we do is we bring in lots of complicated programs and steps and different things that we need to do and yet you talk in the book about the need for simplicity you know uh, to strip things back because um, we've made things um, far too complicated what do you think a sort of stripped back faith might look like mm. um, I don't know is the answer um, I don't know what anybody is going to take away from their experience of reading this book and you know I've tried to write it in such a way that I've put a number of ideas out there and then I've tried to write it in a way that encourages people to engage with that prayerfully and that's not a cop-out I just think there's we've often fallen into the mistake of thinking that because something's been a good idea for us, it would be a good idea for, for everybody else. And it seems that that's not, uh, not always the case. Um, we talked about the idea of reintroducing in, within the idea of rewilding. There's another important idea, which is about ridding 
the environment of invasive species. <laughs> so there are species... I, I, that chapter. That chapter wasn't what I was hoping it would be about. I've got to be honest. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but um, perhaps I had too many individuals in mind. I don't know. <laughs> well, okay. So actually, to be fair, it wasn't the chapter I expected it to be either. And I, and I think I explained that in the chapter that you know I had a long list of things that I thought these are invasive species in the church and what i mean by that is you know these are species that they're, they're, they're things they're they're aspects of culture if you like they're, they're they're habits that shouldn't be there but the more i looked into those things and drilled down i found at the root of them was a much smaller list and that actually it was about fear rather than love and that three things I, I highlight in particular. One is about frenetic activity. Um, we seem to feel as church congregations that we need to do everything and cater for everybody. And yet all the kind of evidence shows that churches which thrive tend to be churches which do a few things and do them well and don't feel guilty about all the stuff they're not doing. And, and the reason they don't feel guilty about it is because they have a clear sense of what God's calling them to be and, and, and do. Um, another invasive species I mentioned is, is busyness, which is a bit different to frenetic activity. One, one's more about the corporate, the busy, busyness is a bit more about the individual. Um, we sometimes feel that we have to do a lot um, for God, on behalf of God, that he needs us to do a lot of stuff. And that busyness often disables us in terms of listening effectively. And the third thing I, I home in on is traditionalism. And, and I make the difference, the distinction between tradition and traditionalism. So tradition is uh, the good stuff, if you like. It's, it's the hard- Help, The helpful things. Yeah, it's the things that are passed on from generation to generation, which we should pass on from generation to generation. Whereas traditionalism is about becoming anchored in the past or, or anchored in the, in the present and kind of um yeah worshiping the form rather than the, the content if you like um sorry i could waffle on about that <laughs> um i mean I, I love this idea of um of simplicity and the idea of of traveling like again you tell another climbing story i perhaps like the climbing stories because i am a person who gets uh, afraid on the climbing wall at go ape so um i don't think it's really for me but you talked about um traveling this idea of traveling light um and um i just wondered um what do you think and, and in this story of climbing you talk about um trying to climb something with too much weight and that hindered your ability to move forward um and you 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 move forward when you you were able to cast off that which you were carrying and and, and travel like what do you think the church needs to cast off in order to make progress um so i, I think the answer to that will be different with different churches obviously mm. but i think generally um kind of larger denominations tend to accumulate a lot of kind of institutional baggage and by that i mean quite complex uh, laws and regulations and structures etc um we, we don't tend to be very good at, at shedding those things when they're past their their useful 
uh, usefulness. So I think I mentioned in the book, I remember in my own denomination, been in a conference some years ago, and the person who would be the most senior kind of authority on church law at that time said to the conference, well, we, we need to remember that we made up these laws and, and we can unmake them if we want to. <laughs> uh, but the fact is we find it incredibly diff difficult to unmake them. Uh, and I guess that's something slightly that I fear about this current crisis as well, is that it does tend to be in times of crisis that we, we bring in uh, new layers of, um, of stuff, new kinds of constraints, which serve as well at the time, but we then don't undo afterwards. And I think I need to clarify, because I know Julie, who's our safeguarding officer, said that at times she feels a little bit like an invasive and unnecessary species. But I mean, <laughs> I think it's clear to say that I, in, in terms of what other organisational structure we've got, actually, that's a species that we do need to have introduced into our climate in order to keep so many other things safe. So uh, yeah. certainly. I'm not talking about that kind of thing at all. You know, I mean, I, I don't know much about your denomination, but I know in my own denomination, you know, church law fills volumes and we have to employ a number of specialist staff and their purpose is to interpret the church law for the rest of us that uh cannot be right it's not these people are my friends i love them they're great but you know it's just it's madness it's absolute yeah. madness yeah with apologies to anybody who's that particular passion that is um <laughs> when you go into to go on about simplicity and the trajectory of simplicity um you naturally come then to talking and we've touched on it earlier about the answer perhaps being in the small but small in this case really is beautiful it's part of our kind of our church biodiversity if we like uh, uh, what do you think um what encouragement have you got for those kind of small churches um and how do you think that they can be used to reconnect themselves and other people to the story of faith? So, I mean, I, I think small churches just have huge advantages in many ways. Um, you know, the church is a relational thing, you know, that's, that's at the heart of it. And small enables you to do relational well. Uh, small enables change to happen uh, more easily than than in the large and obviously there are you know mega churches that seem to thrive numerically when they do it is invariably because they do the small well mm. so they find ways of creating small units and and where they do very well is where the small is given high importance compared to the large so you know it's, it's almost the primary expression that you know as an individual you will relate to the small thing primarily but you will also enjoy being part of this larger celebration yeah. rather than the other way around i think our churches often get caught between those two extremes don't they they're not they're not small really kind of tight relational groups neither are they mega churches you know they're caught in the middle and they're too big to be um Re relationally well connected without some um, some good work intentional work on that and neither are they big enough to to have that sense of celebration 
Um, so yeah, we're often caught in the difficult place, but it, but it's easier to to focus downwards, if you like, on the small, than to to try and kind of create the bigger, if you like. The other advantage, I guess, of being small is it's easier to see who's missing um, in the small, and you talk about um, who's missing, and that was a. Um, when you go into explain about who's missing, it wasn't what I was expecting it to be in a sense. I was expecting to say, of course, well, you know, the twenties to forties are are missing from our congregation. Men are underrepresented, and and whilst you do touch on that, you offer some um, some different explanations as to why that might be. I'm not going to try and explain that at all. I'm going to pass it over to you because because in a sense, it is some quite complicated stuff, but it, some enlightening stuff as well. Yeah. Okay. So. It's complicated, but it's also part of the challenge is it's invisible. So what's, what you're talking about, Stuart, I think, is about um, research that, that I've been involved with, but I also kind of touch on a lot of other people's research related to psychological type, pers personality type, etc. And when we look at people in that way, what we find is that in our church congregations, there are some very endangered species so there are certain psychological types who are rarely found in traditional church church congregations and yet when i've done that kind of research amongst the um the churchless christians we find that they're they're overrepresented there so you know these people have been part of the church at some time in many cases but they're they're not um, and I, and I offer some kind of explanations around that. I mean, behind it is this phenomenon that institutions, and, and it's not just churches, um, institutions have a tendency to become the same unless we intentionally counter that. So if you apply it to a church, so, you know, a church that is primarily female is more likely to be able to attract other females and it's more uh, likely to struggle to retain its male members. So that, that's an easy one because we can see you know, men and women, we can usually observe quite easily. The personality type's more, more difficult. But yeah, you find that there, there are a huge over-representation compared to wider society of some types in churches and others are, are almost hardly ever there now. And I mean, he talks as well about, but particularly that um, the church seemed to appear to put off people who were questioning, who wanted to ask questions. And um, I remembered a story, uh, a colleague of mine once told about a lady who was 96 in, in a Bible study. Um, and he said that if I related, uh, we were talking about the, uh, the Easter experience, if I related to anybody, it would have been to Thomas because he had so many doubts and I have so many questions to ask. And this lady at 96 said, you mean after all these years, you're finally telling me it's okay to have some questions. And I thought that was, that was quite, quite profound. Um, in reading a book about church, I hadn't, I've got to be honest, I hadn't expected to be so engrossed on a chapter um, explaining the reintroduction of beavers uh, to the landscape and um, and the benefits that they have. But you, you talk about beavers and about how, it, you know, introducing is great for beavers, but actually so many other um, species flourish 
because of the work that beavers do. And people introduce beavers for lots of different reasons. Some, um, some because of, of that and, and some kind of moral right to introduce them and all kinds of different things. Um, but what I draw out is the church is enriched when we encourage and celebrate diversity. How do you suggest that we can do this? Well, I think you've touched on one of those ways already. We can, we can create opportunities and cultures where asking questions and exploring doubts is, is welcomed. Um, now, of course, if we do that within our church groups, that is unlikely to be discovered by those endangered species who are, who are out there. You know, we need to be, um, we need to take that to where people are as well um, and be kind of turning that inside out. But first of all, that needs to be a bit of a cultural change within, within the church, I think. Uh, and that, that, is a, that is a huge challenge for many traditional congregations where the personality types that are strongly overrepresented there are, are of, of a different kind um, hmm. and, and may find that quite difficult, quite threatening. Um, so, so Mal's asked us, he said, we've stopped, we've listened, we've looked, our minds are fuddled, we're at the starting blocks, what do you say is the main thing we'll need to leave the starting blocks towards the new normals? Um, courage. Courage. So, you know, I, I think I talk in the book that the church needs to kind of rediscover this rhythm between patient listening and courageous action. Um, the, the scary thing about listening is we don't know what we're going to hear. <laughs> and it may well be that what we hear is not uh, just keep doing more of the same. <laughs> and it's going to require courageous action um but if our focus is renewed if our focus is on following jesus and what we believe we've heard is from him then we are uh it still requires courage it requires faith i mean it is a it is a faith isn't it um we call it the christian faith we step out in trust and I liked, uh, I, well, I, liked, I liked when you talked uh, the story that may be apocryphal about Christopher Wren going around St. Paul's Cathedral asking the different people what they were doing and, and there was some stuck in the detail of well I'm just cutting this stone uh, and then finally one said I'm building a cathedral to, to worship my God and you know perhaps we do get stuck in that detail do you think too much? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, I tend to be a big picture person and I realise that it's not, not where everybody's at. I mean, I also talk in the book about trying to encourage a culture in church of experimentation. I mean, when I work with congregations, I, I often encourage them, try something, mm. try it and, and get away from an idea, the idea that we have to have this kind of big vision and it's kind of all in or, or, or not. But yeah, try, try something, give it a go and see what happens, see what you learn from it. And I think often that courageous action, if you like, is, is not, um, you know, building a cathedral necessarily. It's going to speak to that neighbor, perhaps. I know when I was, uh, when I was leading a church, the question we always used to have at our kind of meetings, what, what do we need to, uh, to stop? What have we done for ages that we need to stop doing? 
um, what do we need to start doing and what do we need to continue with? Because sometimes when we when we try something, we think if we try it, we've got to then do it forevermore. Uh, and some things are, are just for a season. And I was reminded when um, you talked about the need to grow relationships and I started off thinking, oh, of course we need to get on with our, our neighboring churches not being so competitive. And then as I read on, I was reminded again, that actually as churches, we need to start being so inward looking and we need to build relationships and connect with um, with other organizations and um, uh, the churches I was working with at a time employed a schools worker um, amongst them all uh, and one of the head teachers said this is fantastic because finally I don't have to pick who I uh, who I work with and he and this head teacher liked this idea of uh, of people working together and then working uh, working with uh, him and I you know I was thinking as well of the story of some of the churches here in Chester um, that uh, Ruth, who's with us tonight, has, has been with her churches cooking meals uh, with restaurants and different providers for people who've been homeless during the last few months. And I thought that was that sense of, of trying something that was a bit riskier in faith and working with others and allowing them to see uh, where our faith drove us and where our faith led us as well. Um, I, I, I said at the beginning that, you know, I was questioning whether this book was just about your desire to get rid of the institution and, it, and I was in this period of lament. You, you will be pleased to know that by the time I came to the end, I had moved to a position of hope as well. I find it quite hopeful, you know, this idea that uh, the small, um, the small had power as well. Um, but in thinking about that small, you're not suggesting, are you? I don't think you are, that we just cling on to every small congregation we've got for, for dear life. You, you, something else really there, aren't you? I'm certainly not suggesting we're clinging on to anything other than the one we're called to cling on to, in a sense. Mm. Clinging on is not a, not a helpful kind of posture at all. So uh, I think one thing I mentioned in the book is, you know, we sometimes confuse the idea that, um, you know, the church will prevail with the idea that this church will prevail and, and that's clearly not the case you know churches churches die denominations die and sometimes they need to die and i think you know when i look around my own part of the world i can see plenty of examples where actually what needs to happen is is a compassionate kind of ending to enable something new to start and, and and to let go not you know the opposite of clinging on if you like and that, now that takes great discernment and i think it takes great love great great pastoral sensitivity i mean one thing i, I wrote about in the invisible church is you know we, we actually need some leaders within the church who have a clear sense of calling to that the the, the kind of the pastoring of of dying congregations not to enable them to cling on for as long as possible but to enable them to come to some kind of closure in a in the most helpful way and move on and, mm. and be part of something new. Mark's just shared with us that the, um, the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan believe that the small is not weak and kind of emphasizes and agrees with what you've been saying. And so I, I do think this is a book full of hope. You know, you talk towards the end about um, this idea of seeing where God is at work. And making sure that that we join in that this is god's mission that the church 
is joining in with, not our mission that we invite God to be part of. What would he want to say to us in the church to encourage us just to do that? Hmm. Um, I think I would, you know, thinking of where we're at just now, this, this current moment, yeah, it's a unique moment, isn't it? I mean, we've, we're all sick of hearing that. I know, you know, it's unprecedented, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But, you know, ha have we actually engaged with that fact? You know, and I, I would just encourage people to be, to be patient and to use this opportunity to be the, the, the unique time that it, that it should be. Um, you know, a time for, for deep reflection and allowing our, uh, imaginations to be sparked. I mean, yeah, we've used the, the word metaphor a few times this evening, you know, and rewilding is a metaphor. And the great thing about metaphors are that they engage the imagination. It, you see the familiar in a, in a new light. Uh, and, you know, maybe what was invisible becomes visible. And, you know, the New Testament is, is full of metaphors. That's, that's how we know um, who we are to be and, and what the church is to be is because it, it's, we're just presented with one metaphor after another. Um, and I think I'm just trying to offer another uh, and say that at this particular time, here's a helpful metaphor. Here's a lens, if you like, you know, have a look through this and see, see what your, your situation, uh, your life, your congregation looks like through this lens. I don't know, perhaps we could sum up but I kind of touched on something that you mentioned earlier. You know, we said we've tried to to box God in. We've tried to make God smaller than, than God is. We've tried too hard to tame God. And, and perhaps now is the time to let go. What would be the one last kind of word of hope that you'd want to offer us in terms of what you see happening to the church if we just... Uh, we just let go and allow God to be God in our midst. Um, and I talk, when I talked about invasive species, I talked about, you know, at the root of it is, is fear. At the root of invasive species is fear. And at the root of reintroductions, if you like, is, is love in terms of the church. Um, and I think we shouldn't fear letting go and letting God, we should fear the opposite. We should fear the temptation to cling on, to use the expression you just used. Um, that's what we should be fearful of. So, you know, maybe to look into our hearts and say, so what, what are we fearful of here? Because I think sometimes when we kind of dig into that and, and discover what it is, we're sometimes surprised and realize that what we're fearful of is not what we should be fearful of. Thank you, Steve. I'd encourage anybody who's not to read the book, but more importantly, I'd uh, encourage you to take on board some of the things that we've talked about tonight, to, to have the courage to let go, to see where God's leading you, leading the churches that you're part of. And, uh, and certainly, I think if, if we can have the courage to do that, then the church uh, is a place, uh, has a hopeful place to go to and will be a place of hope to others. Steve, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for your ideas. Thanks for what you've shared and, uh, and God bless you. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. Much.